While Britain works out the details of its divorce from the European Union, it's hard to overestimate the significance of last year's Brexit vote. It is the biggest political event in the UK since the Second World War, and I think it's an earthquake in our UK politics. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. British voters from England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland share their perspectives on what's ahead for a non-European United Kingdom. And I have twin daughters of 21, and they feel cheated that they're not going to have the opportunities to work in Europe and live in Europe as I do now. Plus, tour guides from Hungary show us how much the people of Budapest enjoy their scenic riverfront along the Danube. Driving home maybe 11 in the evening and looking over to the castle district and see all the lights there are on. And I'm just saying how lucky one can be to live in Budapest. Insider views of Budapest and what's ahead after the Brexit vote. It's coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. The results weren't final until the middle of the night. But by the looks on their faces, you could tell that the TV news team at the BBC didn't expect to report that the British voters had just decided to leave the European Union. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear why some of those voters wanted to leave the EU and why other British voters are dismayed at what this could mean for their country and for Europe. First, let's start out on a different note, enjoying the views of one of Europe's magnificent capitals. The Danube River defines the two major halves of Budapest, and the river has been a lifeline for Hungary in its more than 1,000-year history. We're joined now by two guides from Budapest who specialize in taking visitors around their city, Peter Poltzman and George Farkas. Peter and George, thanks for being here. Hi. Thank you. What does the Danube, the river, mean to the people of Budapest? George? I think it's uh, one of the places where locals love to come down. It doesn't have to be a tourist. One will come down and just enjoy the view, which I do every day. I'm just so appreciative driving home maybe 11 in the evening and looking over to the castle district and see all the lights there are on. And I'm just saying how lucky one can be to live in Budapest. It's a beautiful sight, isn't it? Peter, how about you? What does the Danube mean to you? You have a body of water that you can always go back to. It can be a lake, it can be a river in, in any city, but uh, yeah, Budapest is blessed with the, with the river. And the other good thing is that it runs through the heart of the city because a lot of cities have got rivers just kind of way out of the city center. In Budapest, it's just right in there. And some cities do not face their rivers. The exactly. river comes through and it's almost a problem and they've turned their back to it. But it, it feels to me Budapest faces its river, even though it is quite a wide river. Hey, the Danube runs through a lot of cities. There's Vienna, there's Bratislava, there's, there's other capital cities there mm-hmm. as well, and not necessarily defined by the river. But I think in Budapest, uh, the river really defines the city. In True. Many ways. George, Dachshund. today Budapest has striking bridges. I mean, uh, there's just mighty bridges. Describe the bridges that uh, define Budapest. I think I love them all. Um, uh, obviously, the most famous one is the Chain Bridge that has so many legends uh, that we are uh, play with. For instance, one of them, we take the ladies over and uh, we believe if we have an honest one on our side, the lions will come alive. And we always make a joke that they've been resting for quite a bit. So um, got these big, you've got these big ceremonial <laughs> right, lions yeah, at the end and of the then, bridge. Yeah, you so just you take, take your girlfriend yeah. across there and uh, sadly, they don't come alive. <laughs> no, they don't, I'm, af- I'm afraid. And they always say, so, well, how about the man? And uh, we say, we can't have them working for the man because they'd be too busy and they would lose their voices. Oh. <laughs> so you've got very uh, important lions on your bridge. Right, yeah. And then they span over the river and, and obviously besides providing a connection, it gives you a chance to walk across and, and look from each side and enjoy them. Yeah. They're really nice. 
And Peter, what do the bridges mean to you in Budapest? Um, there's two that I, I like particularly. One is Liberty Bridge. It's two bridges down from Chainbridge. And uh, I really like it because there's lots of youngsters sitting on, on that bridge all the time in the evening. So you turn around and you see all the lights. You see the entire city. And it's the same thing uh, with Margaret Bridge, which is one bridge up from Chainbridge. You just turn around and see the entire city. So that's a beautiful thing. I really like mm. the view. So when you go to Budapest, be sure to enjoy uh, the bridges and remember there's that passeggiata scene. Do you know the word passeggiata, paseo? Yeah, in Italy paseo and in, in, in Spain, Spain you know, yeah. people are out mm-hmm. strolling. What's the paseo thing in Budapest? Are people out in the beautiful early evening hours? They are, and I've got some good news for you because uh, the city is uh, very seriously talking about just going back to where it started from, which is uh, people walking along the riverbanks. So uh, they will be uh, rejuvenating a lot of areas there. Uh, we have got one on the Pest side. Uh, we call it the Promenade, right, George? Yeah. Um, it runs from uh, pretty much the Liberty Bridge up to the uh, Chain Bridge. It's two bridges, and that's where people would come out, uh, take their photos and, and eat ice cream, take their kids over there. Buddha side has got a longer stretch, but because it's longer, it's not necessarily um, just one stretch that people would go. Um, most of the riverbank actually is being recognized by UNESCO, so it's a protected site. Okay. And now they're moving towards to make it more pedestrian. And this is where, for instance, the European Union comes in that provides us a lot of funds to uh, basically create or to be able to build the dreams of the architects, uh, even though some, some of the dreams that you can see are uh, quite elaborate. And well, that's look. interesting. So there's a sensitivity or a sensibility about the architect had a vision and we need to let our city evolve while respecting the vision of the architect. Right. Um, not always considering traffic. And, <laughs> there's some modern day realities yeah. how people are going to get from A to B but. well anytime you have a pedestrian boulevard there's traffic consequences well, yeah. but I think people are favoring people friendly and bicycle friendly city designs exactly. What's the, is that happening in Budapest now? overall the city yeah the, uh, I, I guess uh, Hungary is the third country in, in the European Union uh, with the most amount of people using bicycles and that's definitely true for Budapest so we have got a tremendous amount of bicycle lanes in lots of areas they actually brought in uh, separate lanes for bicycles uh, no cars allowed Mm-hmm. Parliament area is one of these. Um, it used to be uh, full of traffic, and right now it's all pedestrian, and people are enjoying uh, being out there. It's much, much more accessible right now. And Peter was talking about the Danube Promenade that is on the Pest side. And remember, Buda is the hilly side, and Pest is sort of the modern commercial side. The venerable palaces and old church and so on is up on the hill on the Buda side. But Pest is where you've got the busy commercial boulevards and so on. And, of course, you've got this big parliament building. It's sort of like our Capitol building and London's Halls of Parliament put together. It just feels like a little bit of London fell into Budapest. Describe the parliament building. On Absolutely. It. And it's not accidental because our architect uh, studied in London and took uh, Westminster as a model. It's actually almost the same size. Uh, imagine we only have you know a population of less than 10 million right now. And we've got this gigantic big parliament over there. It does feel a little bit oversized exactly. for Hungary, I've got to say. Well, but I'm proud of it. It's a beautiful <laughs> building. Well, we must say it was oversight for current Hungary. But if you think in turn of a century, obviously. Yeah. The country Absolutely. was much, much bigger. So that's what oh, it was. Oh, that's built a very for. good point. Yeah. Because so. was this built as part of the 1896 oh, yeah, celebration? It was the of times of expanding and, and when they realized that they need one. And I always uh, say to people that you might feel that it's too big, but we must realize that our edges were cut off, but they can't shrink the so parliament. We should remind yeah. our, our yeah. listeners <laughs> that was about 20 years before the end of the Austro Hungarian Empire, right? right? Yeah. With World yeah. War One. And in the late 1800s, Austria and Hungary, together Budapest and Vienna, ruled a mighty and multi-ethnic empire. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting a view of one of Europe's most beautiful cities, Budapest, from its pedestrian-friendly riverfront promenades that run on either side of the Danube. Our local guides are George Farkas and Peter Poltzman.
On the Pest side, we've got the little bit of London Parliament building, and on the other end of the walk, you'd have this amazing Industrial Age Market Hall. George, describe this market hall for us, because it's one of the most dramatic for shopping for produce in Europe, I think. Oh, it's great. Um, And I love how it was an answer to make um, a beautiful, elegant and chic city. Obviously, the designers uh, thought that they can't afford to have boxes and traders and all those out on the street anymore, so they decided to pull them on the roof. So that was it. I didn't know that was an initiative to clean up the streets by providing yeah, a good place. Yeah, because there was a, a competition between Budapest and Vienna, which town can come out with a nicer cityscape. And then, uh, Budapest so Vienna has this sprawling open-air market, the Noshmark. Right. And Budapest has taken all that Noshmark uh, chaos and put it in a big a protected square roof. building yep. under a protected roof, iron and Which steel. Which looks like a, a train glass. station, but it had never been a train station. It was built to it's be a market. It's got to be one of the great sites in, in Hungary, I think. Oh, yeah. People enjoy it. We enjoy it. Locals shop there. I think Peter does. He just yeah. lives well, around the corner pick, from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we pick up the kids from the, uh, from the kindergarten, from the nursery, and have them walk over to the market hall. They pick out something. I get to eat it. There's a beautiful strudel place. Boy, so, it's gorgeous. Peter, let's yeah. say I'm going to visit you in Budapest and you take me to the big market. Where would you take me? What would we buy? First of all, there's three levels to it. Uh, I really like uh, downstairs because that's where the uh, pickled vegetables are. Oh, and yeah. that's one thing that, that locals love. I would definitely take you there. The pickles. Um, the pickles, yeah. Oh, oh I love Why them. so many pickles in Hungary? It's just traditional. Uh, when there were no refrigerators, people used to pickle everything oh, for, the, for the winter. If you want to take your vitamin C, you don't go to a pharmacy to pick a vitamin C. You go down to the market hall and then, and then you buy pickled vegetables. And awesome, it works. So really? I can prove it, yeah. Well, when I was in Russia, it, it wasn't anything about vitamins. It was something to eat with your vodka. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's good for, for certain things too. <laughs> yeah, sanitation. Okay, so you got the pickles. And what pickles. else do you have in the basement? The, um, and there's fish as well. So which, the stinky which stuff is, is in the basement. stinky stuff is in the basement. And the good thing about the market hall is that it's a real market. And one of the cheapest ones, recently they, they uh, ran an article in a Budapest newspaper that talked about the good butchers in the city and among the top three they were in the market haulers and, and it's one of the cheapest places so I would definitely take you around show you all the all the knuckles and the hoofs and the tails and everything that, that you knuckles, may Knuckles, hoofs and tails yeah. oh you're stoking my appetite uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Once I met a chef from a Five Star Hotel and he talked about seeing stuff here in the market hall that you cannot get in Western Europe I think yeah. what's also great the ambience between the shopper and the shopkeeper is still there, so they recognize each other instead of going to these big um, you do supermarkets. Feel, you feel the yeah. neighborhood. So they, they, they understand each other. They know what one or the other is looking for. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Pultzman and George Farkas about their capital city, Budapest. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Olga's calling from Vancouver in Washington. Olga, do you have any memories of uh, your visit to Budapest and walking along the Danube? Yes, I was just recently there, a few weeks ago, actually, and um, I decided to play tourist because I'm Hungarian, and I decided just to have a fun walking down on the Danube on both sides, and I came across a memorial for um, the Jewish people with the shoes. Very moving spot to go and see. It's really hard to describe. You have to be there to see it. So I understand it's like um, bronze shoes in the pavement, or describe the memorial to us, Olga. Yes, they have shoes that are like men's shoes, women's shoes, high heels, uh, little children's shoes. Mm-hmm. And um, people, I noticed, were leaving the rocks like at Jewish memorials, but also flowers, little mementos. But it's just, you can imagine the history behind it, at least what I understood, was that the Jewish people were brought over there, they were shot and then pushed into into the Danube, but they mm. were asked to remove their shoes. 
Oh. And so the shoes are, rep- I, at least that's how I'm understanding it, that that's what the shoes are representing Oh, that them. is very, very poignant to think that they said, we don't want to waste the shoes, and then they would kill them and throw them into the river. Yes. So very wow. sad spot, very moving place. And I think it's it's good to be reminded of what happened in the past. It sure is. Olga, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with George Farkas and Peter Poltzman about the Danube as it flows through the great city of Budapest. If you could both just share with me, let's pretend it's your birthday party, you've invited a bunch of friends, and you're going to go down to the Danube, and you're just going to have a good time. What are you going to do, George? I would probably go down to the um, edge of the Margaret Island that we haven't talked about yet and just sit by the uh, musical fountain and open up a bottle of champagne and enjoy it there. Happy birthday on Margaret Island. Thank That's you. the playground of Budapest. <laughs> and, and Peter? What comes to mind is uh, at the very southern end of the city, there's uh, a beautiful uh, music hall. Um, yeah, I would love to go there. Uh, you can party there as well and you can listen to music Which too. music hall is that? And this is called the Abrationist Mupo. It's it's uh, Palace of Arts, I, I guess. That's how it translates so it's the, into a, a new cultural center. It's a new in cultural center in M-U-P-A concert hall. Exactly. Mupa concert hall. A beautiful thing. Peter Poltzman, George Farkas, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of Budapest. Thank you for having us. Last summer's Brexit vote opened up doubts and divisions among the British electorate about issues of sovereignty and identity as they compare with the benefits of staying as a part of the European Union. We'll get perspectives on Brexit from supporters and opponents of the move to leave the European Union. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. After more than 30 million votes were counted up last summer, the British people chose to take whatever steps it'll require to end their country's participation in the European Union. As with the Scottish independence referendum a couple years ago, the Brexit vote had only one question on the ballot. Should Great Britain either remain with or leave the European Union? Majorities in Scotland and in Northern Ireland wanted to remain, but in England and Wales, the leave sentiment carried the vote. We'll hear from supporters of leaving the EU in just a bit. But first, let's get the perspective of voters who are disappointed that Britain's leaving the EU. Jeannie Carmichael lives in London, Liz Boardman's from the historic town of Bath in the hills of southwest England, and Cullen Mares is from Glasgow in Scotland. They all voted to remain in the EU. Join us now to share their concerns over what's next for Britain. Jeannie, Liz, Cullen, welcome. Hello. Pleasure. So you all remain, (laughs) and... uh, Half of your country, or actually more than half of your country, voted to leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 52%. When you say your country, you're talking about Britain there, but my country voted to remain. Okay, so now, <laughs> So, Colin, you're from Scotland, yeah. and, and Scotland voted pretty clearly to remain. Yeah, 62%. And, and Jeannie, you're from London, yes. and London voted pretty clearly Strongly to, to remain. remain. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, Liz, I guess you're representing the countryside of England here, <laughs> although you're in Bath, which is a rich, uh, it's a sophisticated town. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Bath probably voted to... We voted to remain. However, the surrounding countryside voted to leave. Mm. And when you said it was a it was a shock, Rick, I have to be honest, for my circle of friends as well, 
It was a hell of a shock. We mm. didn't expect that at mm. all. So you went to bed thinking, wow, we've dodged a bullet. This was yeah. kind of nerve-wrackingly close, but we're still with the EU. I think yes. even a lot of the people that voted to leave, they didn't expect it either. A lot of people probably voted in a kind of a protest vote. or a protest They, they vote. thought it was a kick in the teeth to the government. Everyone mm. telling them, you should vote Remain, you should vote Remain. So, no, vote protest me. vote. Great. You yeah. shook things yeah. up. So, yeah. what motivated voters to do this? Was it fear of immigrants? Was it uh, frustration with needless regulations from Brussels? Mm. Well, I think, as in every election, it's a plethora of issues, really. We were faced with a black and white question to respond to a rainbow of issues. So, for some people, it was immigration. They stoked the fires of anti-immigrant sentiments as well. Other people, it was fed up with the bureaucracy of the EU, so people wanted to kind of basically take back the power. Um, Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP at the time, UKIP's UK Independence Party, uh, he basically stopped short of saying, let's make the UK great again. And uh, basically it was just a lot of fake news and a lot of uh, things. That you were, had fake news and oh, you yeah. had yeah. Uh, let's make Britain great again sentiment. Mm. More or less. Yeah. Now, this was very poignant, what you just said. You were given a black and white decision to mm-hmm. deal with a rainbow mm-hmm. of issues. And that is a frustration when you're a voter because you may want to make changes with the EU mm-hmm. and you may really be upset with the EU, yeah. but you've got one choice, leave or stay. Yeah. It was similar with the Scottish independence vote, wasn't it? Yes, yes. The Scottish independence vote, we had that in 2014. So that was in Same September. sort of thing. You know, you, you yeah. probably, there, there was a grey area in the middle yes. that you would have liked yeah. to have that option. Yeah, so there, there was people that wanted the option of Devo Max. So devolution is the current situation we have in Scotland. They wanted just more powers devolved, but not a complete breakaway. But that wasn't offered as an option, which may have been one of the reasons why it led to being so close. And on the Brexit vote, it was quite close, wasn't it? It was. It was 52 to 48. 48. And I think that came as quite a shock. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head earlier, Rick, when people voted for the wrong thing. They voted for immigration. They Mm -hmm. didn't vote to leave the EU. Mm -hmm. And there was an awful lot of scaremongering with the press and the politicians prior to the actual vote itself. And I genuinely think the public were very confused as to what they were actually voting for. A vote for immigration, meaning a vote to protect the country from Mm -hmm. becoming less white? Really a case of protecting our borders. The fear is uh, the second uh, most prolific language now in Great Britain after English is Polish. Polish? Yes. So Mm -hmm. a great many Polish workers have come Mm -hmm. and they've revolutionized the building trade. How so? Well, because you can now get a, a good, cheap builder who will do what you ask him. There's 100,000 Poles in Ireland during yeah, the Celtic precisely. Tiger. Mm. Yeah. They just moved over to England Indeed. when Ireland became <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So there's this mobile yeah. force of hard-working yeah. Polish workers. Absolutely. And they know what's how to not to houses. love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, there is a reality is that immigrants will work really hard for yeah. less money. I, I've got this quote by your former prime minister, Tony Blair, after Brexit. Those in the political center were demonized as out-of-touch elites, as though the people leading the insurgency were ordinary folks, which in the case of the Brexit campaign is a laughable proposition. Mm. Immigrants were described as scroungers cutting in line in front of good white English people. Our populace has an addiction to simple demographic answers to complex problems. Experts who warned of the economic impact were called scaremongers. The term expert actually became derogatory, Underlying it all is a shared hostility to globalization. The challenges of globalization cannot be met by isolationism or shutting borders. This is fascinating stuff to an American Mm. because we've got the same 
fears yeah. and, mm. and anxieties. So let's talk about this a little bit. Out-of-touch elites. I think a lot of the, the people who were trying to promote the leave side, they tried to kind of come up with this image that they were for the, the white working classes. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly not true. They're elites as well. I mean, Boris Johnson, who was one of the key figures, is basically one of the most elite politicians you can so get. So they were uh, elite mm-hmm. in their ability it's, to use the working class for their yeah, interests. Yeah, yes. to, make, to make them think that it's basically them getting their country back when they're going on about all that immigration stuff. Another one of the things they said was that they had this big bust, the Remain campaign, uh, which said on the side of it, the UK sends, I think it's the 350, was it billion or million? Million. Million. million pounds to the EU, and that money mm. can be spent on the NHS. And then after That's the result of the vote, they were asked, well, so will that money go spent in the NHS now? And they said, no, well, no, we can't really say that. <laughs> said, well, that's what you said. That's what you promised. So yeah, that was, well, uh, it was like it was uh, blatant lying. Blatant, blatant lying. Yeah. Absolute yeah. blatant yeah. lying. To, to bamboozle the yeah. less sophisticated voter. Exactly. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So, which as you and say, And then Rick, the next day after the election, they just go, yeah, they just say, kidding. oh, well, I just said that. Yeah. Sorry. Just said it to get mm, votes. Yeah. And what do you do? You, there's no yeah. going back. Yeah. Yeah. You can't exactly. cry foul. Yeah. So the term, I think, which is used and is apparently the, the word of the year for 2016 was the post-truth. Post-truth. So basically, they can put forward a lie and just then say afterwards, and, well, you And know, get away with it. But what really about true. your journalists? Aren't the journalists supposed to check this? <laughs> Supposedly. Yeah. Supposedly. But when you have political leaders like Michael Gove actually saying... Don't trust the experts. Don't listen to the experts. So you've got they a, don't know what they're talking about. The voices, the powers behind Brexit yeah, were, were yeah. delegitimizing yes. the journalists, yeah. the, the ma- what we mm. would call the mainstream yeah. media, and then they could tell their lies, and uh, sure. the people who voted for Brexit mm-hmm. uh, didn't trust the journalists. So even if the journalists tried to blow whistles, they just go, oh, they're part of the whole corruption That's correct, scene. and some of the lies that were told were unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For example... Don't worry about trading with the EU because there are other markets. Mm. Like China, they actually stated that we have 19% of our exports going to China. Mm-hmm. In reality, it's 1%. Mm-hmm. So well, huge lies like mm. this weren't challenged successfully. I think as well, on a, on a personal level, we were told beforehand that house prices are all going to crash. The sterling is going to mm. be worthless. Mm. And there <laughs> was what, so if you, much... If you stay? If, well... It was the same argument for both sides, really, that no one ever actually came out and said, if you leave the EU, this, this and this will happen. That was not communicated. No, No, not clearly. Similar issues like we had in Scotland with nobody knowing what the future holds. So you can't say we're going to be better this way, we're going to be better that way. And other people just telling bald-faced lies, get away with it. People take the statistics they Mm. like and... Our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves all voted unsuccessfully to keep Britain in the European Union in last summer's Brexit referendum. Colin Mares is from Glasgow. Liz Boardman is from Bath in southwest England. And Jeannie Carmichael lives in London. We'll hear the views of people who wanted Britain independent of the European Union a little later in today's show. You know, there are fascinating parallels when we think about the election last November in the United States Mm -hmm. of, of Donald Trump. And uh, what we have in the United States is quite a divided country right now. Mm. There's something called a big sort in our country where people are choosing to physically move Mm. to places where they are surrounded by people who think like they do politically, Mm. which makes different parts of the country more extreme in their thinking. And there's even a big sort in the way we consume news. Liberals will consume news over here. Conservatives will consume news over there. Does Britain have a similar kind of dynamic going on with a divided country? I would say so, because one thing I have really noticed is that people who voted to leave don't admit it. (laughs) Yes. Seriously. 
And when they do admit it, we have dreadful arguments and mm. dinner parties and social occasions now. I think the other thing with the EU, though, Rick, and I'm not sure if this came through with your election as well, the younger generation were desperate to stay within the EU. And I have twin daughters of 21 and they feel cheated that they're not going to have the opportunities to work in Europe and live in Europe as I do now. So, Liz, if you were to measure that, the older generation voted more clearly to leave. Yes. And the younger generation that's going to spend their lifetime now in what they would consider Little Britain instead of Great Britain. Yes. They would have voted to stay. That's oh, dramatically. So 75% of the people who voted to remain were 25 and under. So 60-plus people have voted to change the world that they won't have to live in. It seems wrong because there's a lot of frustration with the younger generation and they are very bitter with the result. They feel powerless. This is driving a wedge in your society even worse than it was before the vote. Definitely. And I, I can see repercussions of this happening over the next five, ten years. What would that be? I think there's going to be a lot of skilled people trying to leave the UK because they want to have the opportunity of working elsewhere. Now, I can see a lot of people coming stateside rather than going into Europe well, now. don't be too quick coming stateside. <laughs> <laughs> Help me hear, Jeannie, from London. If you're going to generalize and say who voted for what, how would you break down the vote? I think it's not that difficult to break down. I don't know if the others would agree. People perceived, I think, in the same way as happened in your country, that the government is largely white, middle and upper class males who do not understand the problems of working class people. So you're saying white, middle class males voted to yeah, leave. have the power and voted to remain. To remain. I mean, David Cameron made this situation to get rid of UKIP and Nigel Farage <laughs> and it blew up in his face, which is why it was horrifying that David Cameron had no backup plan should the vote go against what he wanted. That's why he resigned. So I don't quite understand this. This was schemed up, this whole Brexit thing, to make a point, assuming Absolutely. it would not win. Yes. Oh, and, yes. And what was the agenda? Well, Nigel Farage and the UKIP party, which is a very nationalist right. party, mm -hmm. very worrying in lots of ways. So uh, fear-mongering. fear-mongering, hating uh, immigrants, all this sort of thing. Right. David Cameron was worried about this. Let's have a referendum, not... David thinking Cameron for, for a moment oh that mm. it would blow up in his face, which is why he resigned the day after the result came through. So he, he, had thought no there, he thought plan. this would just be a simple victory to get these guys Absolutely out of the picture, to humiliate them. Yes, it was all political. Mm. I think as well, some voters actually made it almost a personality vote. Mm. You either mm. voted for David Cameron or Boris Johnson, mm. rather than, again, focusing on the issue, which was EU, yeah. so... Not even, only were yeah. they confused over immigration and the EU itself, it ended up a personality vote. Yeah. And a lot of people saw it as well as basically Boris Johnson's trial for being Prime Minister was mm. if he could win the vote, then he could take David Cameron's job, which he's not done yet. But. No. Mm -hmm. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and we're getting the personal perspectives of three tour guides who were on the losing side of the narrow Brexit referendum last June. They are Scotsman Cullen Mares, Londoner Jeannie Carmichael, and Liz Boardman from Bath in England. As you know, the vote set Great Britain on a course to give up its membership in the European Union. Okay, let's say this is all going to happen, and in the next year they're going to figure out a way to extract Britain from the EU. 
What's your best guess on what's the fallout? Might it be not as bad as everybody thinks? Yeah, well, I, I think the important thing really to remember in all of it is the classic British uh, attitude of keep calm and carry on. I think that <laughs> I think all will sort itself out. It'll or sort as, it out yeah, sooner as, or later. As Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I think for for someone from England as well, I am really, really concerned. Scotland will have another referendum mm. and the United Kingdom will be broken up because if they have another one after the EU, we're going to lose Scotland mm. within the United well, Kingdom. Well, this is an interesting issue to me. And Colin, you're here from yeah. Scotland. And I know a couple of years ago you voted narrowly mm-hmm. to stay with Britain, which was part of the EU. Mm-hmm. Now you've got a situation where Scotland voted to stay with Britain, which has decided to move out of the EU Would that have been enough of a change if Scotland could vote now that Scotland would more likely be independent in order to stay in the EU? (laughs) Did you follow me there? Yeah, I follow you, yeah. And uh, the answer is as complicated as the question. Yeah. Um, Mm. Because it's all hypotheticals. But Scotland voted to stay in the UK and one of the things that motivated people to vote that way was to remain part of the EU. So it's a little um, bit of a bait and switch. Yeah, but I don't think we will have another Scottish independence referendum Mm-mm. soon. So you're you're sailing away from Europe with England. Yeah, I think we're in that. And and yeah. Jeannie in London, I mean, the finance industry <gasps> is is a huge industry, and it's uh, sort of the English speaking gateway to the EU and from the EU to the rest sure. of the world because England is a natural finance centre and it speaks English, which is the language of global finance. Mm. It was just natural for London to be the centre of the EU uh, finance industry. I would think that would be devastating for London's economy. And one of Mr. Trump's chief advisors has advised other countries to jump in on the bandwagon, Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, banks are going to move to Frankfurt, Mm. to other countries. And he actually has said to them, come on. Frankfurt could take the lead. Dublin could take take the lead. Those are the two big contenders, Frankfurt and Dublin. Either way it goes, there is going to be a potential ripple effect on the EU. You, you could look at it like, okay, Britain never had the euro. Britain's mm-hmm. always got this kind of attitude about, you know, the French and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, it wasn't a good fit. You, see you guys, we'll still be friends. Yeah. And, and then that makes Europe a little more cohesive and a little tighter. Mm-hmm. Or it could be the beginning of the end of the EU also. It really could go either way. Yeah, yeah. yeah genuinely. Mm-hmm. Let's say there's a hard Brexit. It proceeds and uh, you're going to look back on it in five years and, and, and try to imagine where you are. What's your prediction? Where's Britain going to be? in five years after the hard Brexit, uh, Liz? I think it's going to be more a case of we need to establish our identity. While we were about to have the EU vote, there was an awful lot of talk about Britain's lost its identity. But I think if you were to ask the average Brit, what is the British identity? I don't think we'd know. (laughs) Honestly, you know, we tend to think of the royal family and we tend to think of the soldiers. But the British identity, what are, is it a white middle class man? Is it a mother and a father, a man and a woman and two children? After the EU vote, it's going to be very interesting. So I think within the next five years, we really need to establish what is our British identity. Economy wise, I mean, we've seen a huge drop in the pound since the result of Brexit. Um, For me with my savings in the UK to send them to where I'm living now in New Zealand. It dropped from, I was getting $2.30 for a pound, and now it's mm. gone to $1.70, mm. uh, which is bad if you're yeah. earning money in the UK and spending right. it outside, but I think for visitors coming to the UK, that's a little bit of the silver lining. 
is that we're going to have a big boom in tourism. Britain's on sale. For us, for us working in tourism, being, uh, yeah. being self-centered, we should see that as a, That's a, as a silver lining. That's a good cheap. thing. Yeah. All right. And Jeannie, five, ten years from now, uh, where's Britain going to be? I feel a bit scared and very sad because obviously, as in the States, there's a huge class of people who have felt that they're not listened to that they're not cared about, but these are the very people who will suffer most when the economy dips, as I'm sure it will. Colin Mayers, Jeannie Carmichael, and Liz Boardman, thank you so much for sharing uh, the challenges confronting your your beautiful country today. And uh, I'd love to check in a little while, and I hope there's some good news, okay? Thanks a lot. Thank Thank you. Thank you. You've just heard the views of opponents of Brexit, people who advocated for the United Kingdom to stay in the European Union. But they lost in last summer's referendum, and Prime Minister Theresa May has promised to see the departure through. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear from supporters of Brexit and what they think and why they voted for a Britain that's independent of its EU partners. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm from London, and it's absolutely fabulous to be here traveling with Rick Steves. I'd love to boast to my friends that I spoke to Rick. We're all sitting with bibs around our necks and our eyes glittering. (laughs) So why did a majority of British voters favor going it alone? For perspective on reasons for supporting an independent Britain, we're joined now by Mark Seymour, who comes from southwest England, and by Lynn Corkin, who lives in Belfast in Northern Ireland. They each voted in favor of leaving the EU. Mark and Lynn, thanks for joining us. Thank you. If I could just start by saying I'm a big fan of Europe. I speak European languages. I've lived in Europe. I've worked in Europe. I love European history and culture. But to me, the European Union has moved far, far away from the people. And it's an institution that people no longer have a buy-in to or affection for. It's a question of sovereignty, and it's a question of regaining the sovereignty of the country I happen to live in. In fact, it feels like being unchained from a corpse to me, and I see it as a positive. I see it that the future will bring all sorts of new relationships with other countries around the world, and particularly, I think the European Union has blocked trade with developing countries, and this is something that uh, hopefully in the future the UK, which is the state I happen to live in, whether or not I, it will always be the UK that I live in, maybe one day will be a, a United Ireland, I don't know. But the state I live in is the UK, and I see it as not a, a little England mentality, which a lot of people characterise it as, but a looking out into the whole world and the okay, opportunities so for trade and educational and cultural activities of all sorts. Did I catch that that Britain joined the EU a while ago, and since then, the EU has become something different, and you felt like they moved away from what you joined? Yes, absolutely. The EU was six countries, and now it's 20... 28. 28. And that, to me, reduces the connection of the ordinary citizen with this behemoth, this massive, massive institution. Right. And most people in Europe probably feel the same, but they're not going to be given the chance to vote to stay or leave. So unchained from a corpse, that is very vivid. (laughs) And I think that's that's quite a nice description if you feel the way you do. Hey, Mark, when you think about the EU taking away British sovereignty, that really is 
sort of the fundamental, isn't it? I mean, you were ruled by Brussels, and you'd rather be ruled by London. It is absolutely fundamental, and that formed the basis of my vote, my opinion. Um, I grew up under British sovereignty and British law, and our laws are ancient laws, common laws. Our entire legal system is based on common law. The English-speaking world's legal system is based on English common law. Common law means the voice of the people. We used to sit around in wooden huts and talk about what should be done in the fields next month. Common law. Um, Very simple, back to basics, uh, very democratic procedure. English law is based on that. We lost it overnight when Britain moved into the European Union and the European Supreme Court was set up over and above our own legal system. Okay, Britain has common law. How is the law fundamentally different on the continent in Europe? Um, It's been devised by a group of anonymous lawyers and politicians, people that certainly Britons don't recognize. So it's not as Uh, inclusive, in other words. You don't feel like you have a seat at the table. We don't have a seat at the table. Uh, The the, the statistics are astonishing. Uh, We have uh, 14% of the population in Europe. We have 17% of the GDP of Europe. And yet we have less than three and a quarter percent of the representation in Brussels in the European Parliament. So that is, that is a loss of sovereignty. It's a complete so, loss. So, complete uh, loss of voice. You would have people in Poland uh, who have every right to make their own laws, uh, directing the laws in, uh, in Northern Ireland and Scotland and England. Yes, yes. Our guests right now are two tour guides who make their living showing visitors their home turf in England and in Northern Ireland. Mark Seymour hails from Bath in Somerset, and Lynn Corkin lives in Belfast, Northern Ireland. They're joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves to point out why they each voted in support of last year's Brexit referendum. It sets into motion the separation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland from the rest of the European Union. So, Mark and Lynn, when we think about what motivated the voters, I just want to understand the electorate here. There was the issue of sovereignty. We, in England, people voted they don't want to be ruled from Europe, as you mentioned quite definitively. You feel like you're not being fairly represented at the table. There is the uh, interesting idea of uh, different sense of law, common law versus some other kind of representative law that you just didn't feel you had a, a seat at the table. Lynn brought up an interesting issue about trade. With the EU, were you feeling like you were stuck in a trading partnership with Europe that was to the detriment of your relations with, with other countries? Yes, uh, and I'm by no mean, means an expert on trade relations, but the EU, often called the single market, is actually a closed customs union. And it is very discriminatory, in my view, to countries from the developing world, particularly Africa, who'd like to export some of their products to the EU. It's simply not permitted. It complicated so many trading relationships, but that is only part of it. It's so complex. There's so many regulations. Well, yeah, I mean, Brexit will be complex, but I'm talking about the mass, the torrent of regulations that comes from Brussels. So there's more regulations if you're part of the EU than you would imagine if you're just in in the UK. Simple things such as defining what a strawberry should be. What a strawberry should be. They spent three and a half million euros defining what a strawberry should be. So England can just decide on its own what a strawberry is. I think is. we can you probably it. already know. I think we can <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or another example I could give you is um, farmers. Uh, I believe most farmers, despite the fact they get a lot of subsidy from the EU, they voted to leave because they're fed up with all the regulations that, such as Mark has mentioned, and the endless bureaucracy. Uh, the fishing industry, the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. people just want to 
life must be simpler than this, really. So this was demoralizing all of the extra regulations that may have been designed for some issue in former Yugoslavia that are settled in North Ireland. it may have been possible when the EU was six, Mm -hmm. but when the EU is 26 or 28, I'm not Mm -hmm. even sure, Mm -hmm. it's it's one size fits all from Mm -hmm. Donegal to Ukraine. (laughs) Now, how much of the issue is immigration? It is an issue. It is an issue. Um, There are uh, racists, there are anti-immigrant advocates all over the world. Mm -hmm. We have racists in Britain. There's Mm -hmm. no denying that. Do we have a lot of them? No. I think we're one of the most open, welcoming nations on the planet. Historically, you go to London, the most cosmopolitan city in the world. Um, We accept people from all over the world in the hundreds of thousands every single year. Are there people who don't like that? Yes, of course there are. Are there lots of them? No, they're not. What's the downside of immigration if somebody is anti-immigration? I think their argument would be the same as you would hear in the United States. Um, you know, they're taking the jobs away from us. Um, they're crowding in line. The crowd, they're standing in line. They're taking Social Security benefits away. Yeah. And we have a very generous Social Security system. All your life you've been paying into this and then an uh, immigrant comes and they're ahead of you, actually. You know, I voted out. I, I've been an immigrant several times myself and I'm very pro-immigrant. Um, uh, I, I like the fact that people can come in and inject a, a new flavor, new ideas into our, into our system, into our nation. If there are racists in Britain, they would have voted to leave. For sure. For yeah. sure. I have no doubt about so that's that. that's in the pro-Brexit camp. Yes. But that's not a prerequisite for supporting. We're talking about very small numbers of people, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Although the press certainly, and I, I know you're inferring it, the press have certainly made great joy out of that. There's a lot of newspapers out of, out of that, both in, in Europe, in the United States, and in Britain. But the people who have voted are centrist voters in Britain. They right. voted out. Lynn, when we think about the uh, the whole issue here, how much does terrorism have to do with it? Is Is, is England thinking we've got to have stronger borders because of safety in regards to terrorism? I think that possibly was a small part of it. I mean, it's like everything. It's like any election, any referendum. When people come to actually vote, there's a whole lot of factors come into it. And I think that would be part of it. For example, the entry of one million plus refugees, economic migrants into Germany would also have contributed to some people's decision in the end, you know, that uncontrolled immigration Mm -hmm. would have been a concern. I think it is a concern in a lot of countries in Europe. Oh, yeah. And also, the other thing about this free movement of workers within the EU is it could be argued that it actually damages the countries that these people leave from. So from Lithuania, from Poland, from the Czech Republic, the movement is westward. What is left behind in those countries? The brightest are leaving. So it's a brain drain. It's a brain drain westward. It's the tipping up of the continent to the west and the, as I see it, the impoverishment of those countries who who joined the EU for perfectly understandable reasons. Poland, Lithuania, the Eastern European bloc. But actually this free movement, I feel, may be now damaging. Damaging to them. To Mm. them. Yes. It's interesting when you look at the, the vote... It was a surprise when England woke up and realized they had voted to leave the European Union. Mm-hmm. And it was a surprise when America woke up and, and realized we have President Trump. Do you think there's um, an issue where the polling is off because people were 
awkward about making it public that they were for this. What do you feel like in England now and in Ireland when you are known among your neighbors as a pro-Brexit person? Is that something that's awkward or you're actually in the majority? Uh, how does it feel? Uh, we're in the majority. I feel quite defensive sometimes because uh, I read the press um, mm-hmm. outside of the United Kingdom. So I, I see how we've been tarred with a particular brush, um, mm-hmm. which is a terrible shame. I'm, I'm so proud of my beautiful nation and the beautiful people that live in it. And uh, mm-hmm. I think we've lost a certain part of our identity to the world. The uh, image was you've been bamboozled by yeah. uh, lies, by deceptive uh, political ads, by power-hungry politicians who didn't think they were going to win, and, and the next day you do win, and they say, well, we're moving on. It's your problem now. I, That's the image I got in the I've got to States. say, I was quietly confident of a win. Um, is that right? Even though all the polls were saying otherwise, I was quietly confident that we had it. And it is interesting, Lynn, when we talk about Ireland, because one-fifth or so of Ireland is uh, North Ireland, part yeah. of the United Kingdom, and four-fifths of the country is the Republic of Ireland, yes. the independent country, which is part of the EU, Last year, the border was not much because you were all in the EU. Yeah. Next year, that border is going to be real again because you're going to be two different trade zones and countries. Yes. Uh, and in Northern Ireland, most people, uh, a clear majority, wanted to stay with the EU. It's very interesting to me. This is sort of a flip-flop thing because Ireland has been this divided island where 20% of the people wanted to stay with Britain mm-hmm. and 80% wanted to be apart from Britain. Mm-hmm. And now the troubles are gone and you're all one happy country, all in the EU, suddenly the North has been taken out of the EU against its own political will. Does that open up an interesting can of political worms with Ireland thinking about maybe we should unite the island? That is a theory, yes, but uh, to me it's not a live one at all. There is no majority within Northern Ireland for unification and it's doubtful if there's a majority within the Republic for unification. I think the two governments will have enough to do getting on with Brexit Mm -hmm. Um, and it will always come down to the economy and economically it's not workable at the moment, Mm -hmm. Uh, the unification project, whatever you think of it, it's just not on the agenda Mm -hmm. and hasn't been for several years. I would think the main thing is not to rekindle the troubles. Absolutely. But I I don't see any reason why that should be rekindled. I don't think there's any desire. So you're confident you can work out the border issues and the trade issues between the Republicans? I think the the two governments Mm -hmm. certainly can. Um, Yes. Lynn Corkin from Belfast and Mark Seymour, who lives in rural southwest England, are explaining their support for last summer's Brexit vote right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So is leaving the EU actually as big a deal as people think it is? Because a lot of people predict economic doom for England. Of course, your pound is now down 17%. Britain's on sale from a tourism point of view. London's going to be dealing with some major adjustments as they decide, is it still going to be a financial capital? Uh, How big a deal is it economically for Britain? Short term, it's been marvellous. The pound has dropped. It means it's creating jobs, businesses in Britain can sell their goods overseas. Uh, Companies are coming to Britain. It's cheaper to do business there. Uh, Long term, how do we sustain that? Well, we'll have to find a way. That's what the Brexit uh, negotiations with Europe are going to entail. How will we make that? But isn't there an efficiency with free trade with the European Union? I mean, right now, nearly half of your trade goes to the EU. Uh, It would seem like free trade in general is a good thing. There is, and I would say, uh, we haven't mentioned it, but I would say that Britain joined, or the British people joined the European Economic Community, so we joined for financial reasons. The EEC, as it became known, became the European Union. We have never had a say in that. 
Um, I'll just throw that in as an aside. So there is sort of mission creep in the part of Europe, isn't oh, there? Oh, big time, yes. It started out as a steel and coal union, yeah. didn't yes. it? I'm just we, of the we, low countries in France. We went in for financial stability and financial right. reasons at a time where, where we were a bankrupt nation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Brexit with two people who are happy that Britain is leaving the EU. Mark Seymour from Bath in England and Lynn Corkin from Belfast in North Ireland. And it's fascinating to get a take that you don't often get on the media and so on and, and to understand, well, numbers can be deceptive when you look at the trade fallout and so on because nobody wants to see Great Britain become Little Britain. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking it's worth taking this hit for sovereignty even if we have a smaller economy? Or are you thinking in the long term this will be good for our economy? Oh, I, th- I think without a doubt in the long term, it gives us potential again. Um, it's going to be good for the economy. It gives us a chance to go out and find our footing in the world. Is there a feeling in England that regardless of what side you were on, we're committed to this now? I mean, I, I thought they would do a revote after they learned about the misguided advertising and all that kind of stuff. But no, it's going to happen. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. You, you're not going to revote it. And now England's going to, like you're so good at doing, keep calm and carry on. We will, we will make it work. You will make it work. So there is a confidence in England. I think so. I, I think a, a lot of political parties even who were against Brexit are now recognising a lot of the reasons why people voted for Brexit, particularly the Labour Party in Britain, which is at the moment the opposition. But I, th- I think there is a recognition that Brexit is going to happen and we're going to make the best of it. And there's endless possibilities rather than an isolation tendency now. A lot of Americans look at our political situation as a spectrum. You've got the left, Hillary, and you've got the right. Trump. And uh, in England, we kind of think you got the left, which is stay with Europe, and the right, leave Europe, Brexit. Is it that simple? I thank you for raising that, because no, it's not that simple at all. We have liberal politics, we have centrist politics, we have left-wing politics. Um, All of our politics are a long way to the left of your centre. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right? So a conservative person in England would be uh, a a centrist here, and a centrist in England would be a liberal here. Yeah. And, and, and a liberal in England would be unthinkably radical and here. certainly with this referendum, it didn't break down on, on political lines at all. But what it has done, I believe, is Brexit. It is the biggest political event in the UK since the Second World War. And I think it has shaken politics. It's an earthquake in our UK politics. And politics is now redefined by Brexit. The old alliances no longer exist. You know, those who voted Labour Party all their lives, those who voted Conservative, that's sort of gone out the window a bit. And now people will be defined by by Brexit, so by their like, views on Brexit. It's kind of like break it down and now let's put it back together. All the pieces are there, but we don't know quite how that's going to work. But there are the pieces there. New alliances and new trusts. Now, from a tourism point of view... Any impact other than the value of the pound? I think it's going to be terrific for tourism, Positive. actually. Um, Why? Because of the value of the pound for the moment. Well, that's good news. But as far as, and then there conceivably more time at the border a little bit because you're not going within the EU. You're leaving the country and going to another country. Other than that, I can't think of any impact on a tourist. Uh, this has been so interesting getting your insight, your take on this. Ten years from now, give me your prediction. Where are we going to be? People are going to look back at Brexit. What are they going to think, Lynn? Whatever it is... I think people will at least feel that the United Kingdom, uh, its destiny is back in the hands of the people of the United Kingdom. We'll never be able to prove whether economically it was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. But whatever it is, the decisions and the laws that govern our country will have been made by our parliament. And that, to me, is the sovereignty of the people. Yeah. And Europe is going to have its own rocky seas ahead also. Totally. Mark Seymour, 
Lynn Corkin, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding. Thank you. Of Brexit. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen in or be a caller during our next set of recording sessions. Find out what we're talking about and how you can participate. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. Look online for a link to our affiliate listings in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, to Eastern Europe, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.